uh, series that started, I think, second week of January on our proposed church covenant. There are a couple copies up here on the Oregon bench. Um, for those of you who uh, don't have one or have lost theirs and want another one, I'll try to replenish that stack um, next week. So um, one of the things that I'll mention here before we get started is that um, if we do choose to adopt a new church covenant, um, I would like to actually use that a part of the service um, when we do take communion and to repeat it together to make it more part of our um, uh, church life and, uh, and services. Um, because, you know, as I mentioned uh, at the first message over the church covenant, that uh, this is really, you know, <laughs> what does it mean to be a member of church, uh, First Baptist Church Glasgow? You look at the church covenant, that's what it means. That's what it means to be part of the, of the church. And so um, I want it to be fresh on our minds. And so if we kind of review it uh, once a month when we take communion, um, I think that'll be an effective way to do that. So um, so let me just uh, pray again before we get started, asking uh, that the Lord come and teach us. Father, I come to you and ask that uh, in the power of your spirit, you would um, be the teacher this morning or that you would um, open up your word, open up our eyes to see beautiful things in your word, that we would... Um, be renewed, refreshed, Lord, that you would uh, wash us in your word, um, that we may uh, become blameless, Lord, that the righteousness which Christ has clothed us with would not just be um, a garment of declaration, but it would be a garment of reality, that, uh, that you, would, you would make our hearts clean, or that we would be presented blameless before uh, Christ um, on the final judgment day. Lord, we ask that you would do this um, for the good of your church uh, and for your glory. Amen. So the first message over the church covenant was the first paragraph. This morning will be over the second paragraph, and I'll read that for us this morning. We endeavor to worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, by maintaining a personal relationship with him through faith in Christ. To this end, we commit to personally seeking the Lord through his word and prayer. We also commit to respond to the Lord's commands in obedience as he is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly desires and to live self-controlled, righteous, and godly lives in this present age. Another way to think about this covenant is that it is both a call and a commitment to love God. Um, Many people, if you ask them, you know, do you love Jesus, would respond with yes. But what does that mean to love God? Does it mean that you think about him every now and then? Does it mean that you, you know, don't not like him? <laughs> this covenant uses the word worship four times. And the outline is something like, you know, we exist to worship God. And so we're going to worship God in these ways. And so for this paragraph, it is how we are going to worship God by maintaining a personal relationship with him. You, you do not worship something you don't love. You don't. We just talked about worship being giving high, high value to something, high priority. And that, in a sense, is love. So love is a part of worship. Last week we talked about William Wilberforce, and he says that when you love someone, you delight in doing things for them. You want to be with them. You want to please them. You want to make them happy. And that all these desires are not done out of fear. They're not done out of duty or begrudgingly. They're done with delight. Yet, it is truth, or excuse me, yet it is true that we do not always feel like doing these things. We're still broken. We're still sinners. 
And that is when we enter into a different type of worship. Choosing to do these things because we believe that they're important, we place high value upon them, even though in the moment we don't want to. However, through this document, we are saying that this is what it means to be a member of First Baptist Church Glasgow. This is how we're choosing to worship God with our lives. This is what we are striving for. This is what we believe God has called us to as believers in Jesus. And I'm signing on to it. If we vote that this is going to be our new covenant in the Constitution, essentially, by voting yes, you are saying, I am signing my name on the dotted line, that I agree with this, and that I'm going to commit to live my life in this way. So it is very important that we understand it and that we see that this isn't just a man-made document. Of course it's man-made, but that it reflects the scriptures. And so that is my goal to, as we go through this series, is to show you how it reflects the scriptures and to show you um, how to carry it out and the importance of it. So the first message um, on the proposed covenant in the first paragraph was really on salvation. It was that we believe in Christ, that we've repented of our sins, and as a result of those things, we want to be a part of this community of fellow believers to love, honor, and worship God together, to accomplish his mission for us as a church in the city of Glasgow and beyond. Now, this morning we're going to look more into the second paragraph to understand first how we worship God through maintaining a relationship through him, and second, how this relationship with Christ affects how we live in this world. So we endeavor to worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by maintaining a personal relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ. To this end, we commit to personally seeking the Lord through his word and prayer. Your relationship with Christ needs to be maintained. And your relationship with Christ that needs maintenance means that uh, it has to be deliberate. You don't, you don't uh, fall into maintenance by chance. You don't do it passively. Maintenance is a very particular thing. It is a thing that takes planning. It is a thing that takes um, priority. And so maintaining your relationship with Jesus takes deliberate, purposeful effort. In John 8, 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We all want the second part of that, right? We all want to know the truth. We all want to be set free, but we often often run over that first part, or at least maybe we don't understand it. The if is the key that unlocks the promises of Scripture and the life of the believer. If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So the key is abiding in his word. What does it mean to abide? That's not really a, a word we use in common English language. To abide means to remain. It means to dwell or to live. It's the idea that you are with somebody, that you are together, that you, you live with them. Your life is connected to them in a certain place or location. So it means to So what does it take to abide with someone? What does it mean to live with somebody? We all live with somebody, or at least have at some point in our lives. What does it take? It takes communication. You're going to do things together. You're going to 
Grow your relationship with the individual that you are with or the group of people you are with, your family, by doing things together. By create, And through doing things together, hopefully, you're creating more healthy bonds with those individuals. You will have the same goals. So you spend time with Jesus. If we're translating that over to what does it mean to abide in Christ? It means that you spend time with him. You communicate with him. You long to know him more, to understand him more. And you line your life up with who he says he is and what he says he wants you to do and how he wants you to live your life. So you're joining your goals together with Christ. You're learning who he is, what his goals are for your life, and you are lining those up. You are living in accordance with those things. In John chapter 15, um, Jesus uh, begins a prayer for his followers, and it's, it's uh, rich and beautiful. I'm not going to read all of it for us this morning, but I'm going to try and pull out some, some points. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. They're yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that I have given, excuse me, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For you have given them the words, excuse me, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm skipping along uh, to verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. That whole section is important for us this morning. Because according to this, you are either with Christ or with the world who is against Christ. Those are the only two options. You've either accepted him for who he is. And believed in his word, and that has set you aside and made you unworldly, made you heavenly, made you spiritual, or you have not, you've rejected him, you've rejected who he is, rejected his word, and are of the world. You cannot be both. So how do you remain with Christ? What does this have to do with abiding? What does this have to do with with maintaining your relationship with Christ? You believe and received his words. You believed and received his words. And so you know through his word who he is, all right? This word, this message separates out God's children from the world. 
How do you know that you're a Christian? You believe Jesus. You accept his words. And then you allow his word to sanctify you, meaning you allow God's word to wash over you and make you holy. See, all of this through here shows the distinctive nature of being a Christian. Being a Christian in the world separates you out. And he goes so far as to say that if you receive my words, the world is going to hate you because they don't accept my my words. That sets you apart. And it is when you are set apart in Christ that you accept his words and his words sanctify you. Right? That was the prayer of verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So you maintain your relationship with Christ through knowing his word and believing his word and allowing his word. It's not just a know and belief. It's a response. You allow God's word to take effect in your heart and you act upon it in obedience. And that maintains your relationship, that grows you as a Christian. So you become mature. You grow in Christ. And Paul says that is his goal, is that he would present mature believers to Christ on the last day. That those who are under his ministry, all the churches that he founded, that he wrote to, that he ministered to, that he poured himself out to, The goal is that they would have a true, genuine love for one another and for God, and that they would be presented blameless, that they would be mature believers. So in order to do that, we have to accept his word, believe his word, and allow it to sanctify us, allow it to make us holy. So moving on to the next section, he says, we also commit to respond to the Lord's commands in obedience. Now here... Here, when we commit to respond to the Lord's commands and obedience, we have to ask ourselves, how do we do that? What does that look like? And for that, I want to turn to Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8. Romans chapter 7, starting verse 6, Paul writes, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way, the way of the Spirit, and not in in the old way of the written code. So here, I want to point out this word serve. If you look at the Bible and do a survey of worship, one of the ways of worship, one of the acts of worship is by serving, right? So when you see serve, that is a way of worshiping God, right? If you are serving him and you're doing it with a glad heart, right? Serve me with gladness. Then that is an act of worship. So how do we worship God in this sense, right? He says we don't worship In the old way of the written code, we actually worship in a new way. The new way is the way of the Spirit. I'll um, explain that more in just a minute. But first, let's look at Romans 8.13. And then we're going to put these together and draw some conclusions. He says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So, Living, if you want true life, you have to live by the Spirit, all right? If you live by the flesh, you're going to die. So at first glance, these passages might seem to you completely irrelevant to our covenant. But I assure you, they are extremely important and have everything to do with our obedience to God. So you have the old way and the new way. The old way is just, here's God's law, and I have to obey those laws. Here's God's way, and I have to do whatever I can to follow suit, 
That's the way I serve God. I just wrote obedience to God's law. I can acknowledge that it is good, that it is perfect, that it is true. But the way I serve is different than that. It's not just here the Ten Commandments and I need to obey those and then I'm good, I'm serving God. Paul is saying there's, some, there's, there's a new way to serve God. He says the only way to live is through the Spirit. It is by the Spirit. All right? So we do not serve God. We do not worship Him. We do not follow in obedience to God the same way that they did under the Old Covenant. Because it's different. There is a new covenant, and in that new covenant, the Spirit of God is given to each and every believer. So we do not get God's presence, right? Remember, abide, that means to that we are with Jesus, that we live with him. So God's presence is with us, okay? We do not get God's presence in our lives through obeying his commandments. See, that's what we often think. We want to get God's blessing, we have to obey his commandments. There is some truth to that, but it's not the whole truth, all right? We are not gifted the Holy Spirit through our obedience to God's law, We're gifted the Holy Spirit through faith. Faith is the entrance into God's covenant. Faith is the entrance of eternal life. And so we do not get the Holy Spirit in our lives because we already obey God. He gives us the Holy Spirit in faith. And then, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are enabled to obey Christ's commandments. So what does this remaining look like? This remaining in Christ is abiding with Jesus looks like knowing his word lining our lives up with that word but but us lining our lives up with him is not something we do of our own power we do it through the power of the holy spirit all right we do not serve in the in the old way of the written code we serve in the new way of the spirit we are putting to death the deeds of the body by the spirit it's not just that's bad i need to stop doing that it's this is wrong. This is unhelpful. This is not glorifying to you, God. Please empower me by the, by the power of your Holy Spirit to repent of this, to turn away from it, and to follow you. There's a, there's a difference. We enter into the new covenant by faith. God gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, because of that faith, by his grace. And then, then we are enabled to obey God in the way that he's called us to and his expectations. I use this passage a lot, but it's been very impactful in my life, and so it applies here too. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. That's what we're talking about, right? We're talking about we obey, we obey Christ. In the covenant it says we also commit to respond to the Lord's commandments in obedience. So this is this is very pertinent. This is very relevant to our covenant. As you have always obeyed. Um, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You hear that? And that sounds like works-based salvation, Brother Ryan. He's telling you to work out your salvation. That sounds dangerous. You're saved by grace through faith. Yes. Yes, you are. But he's not just talking about entrance into the kingdom of God. He's talking about how to live out that salvation. How you put deeds to the salvation. The effects of being made right with God. He says, work out salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So my obedience, right? He says, as you've always obeyed, work out your salvation. 
So my obedience is not me pulling myself up by my bootstraps. My obedience is not me saying, I've really got to do this. Otherwise, God's going to strike me down. Otherwise, God's going to take away my children. Otherwise, God's not going to bless me. No, my obedience is a reliance upon the Holy Spirit to do a work in me. Right? He says to work, um, uh, to will and to work. What does that mean? The will is like, I want to obey. So, so God works in me so that I want to follow his rules, so that I want to obey him, so I want to live in accordance with God's word. And then it says to will and to work. That's, that's the ability. What good is it if I want to follow God, but I don't have the ability? The spirit in your life provides both. So your obedience is not a reason for pride or arrogance or self-righteousness. Because the Christian who has inherited the kingdom of God because they are poor in spirit is the kind of person who recognizes that all of their obedience, all of their good deeds, all of their righteousness that they've done in God's name, they've done through the power of God. Paul says, I am of my flesh, I can do nothing. Right? We have to rely on the Spirit of God to grow and to abide and to obey. <clears throat> so the next section is, he is training us. He is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly desires and to live self-controlled, righteous, and godly lives in this present age. Perhaps that sounds familiar, familiar to you. Perhaps it doesn't. Maybe it just sounds too wordy. This is a, a, a line that is pulled directly out of Scripture, found in Titus chapter 2, verse 12. I'll read verse 11 as well for us for context. Paul is writing to Titus. He's a pastor that he sent out to pastor a church. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. My first point that I want to highlight immediately from this is that it is God who brings salvation. Did you recognize that? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. All right. God's grace brings salvation. Salvation is a direct result of the grace of God. And an important yet often overlooked element of this salvation that God brings is a training in godliness. His salvation doesn't just forgive you and move on. It just doesn't give you a bunch of rules to obey. No, God's salvation that he gives to us is more robust than just a write-off that you are forgiven and then can go to heaven when you die. God's salvation is so robust that he remains with you. It is God's grace is active after your initial conversion. Right? The Holy Spirit works in your lives. You recognize your sin. You turn to God for forgiveness. You believe in Jesus Christ that the death he died on the cross was for you. And then the grace of God remains. It stays active in your life to train you to live a godly life in this present age. And we desperately need this training, do we not? We live in an age that is unbelievably ungodly. I mean, we, we drink ungodliness through entertainment like, it, like it's water. We don't even recognize it anymore. I mean, yeah, we can, we can focus on all the crazy political stuff 
and all of the ideology that's being presented. But the reality is, is that each and every one of us who are living in this culture, we are fish in water and we don't know that we're wet. The culture is so ungodly that we need God's training to show us the ungodliness so we can cast it aside and live lives that honor him, that worship him, so that we can have true worth and know God intimately. And in first Peter, Peter writes this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, meaning you are not of this world. It lines right up with what Christ said in chapter 15, right? That you are not of this world. Well, if you're not of this world, right, if you're not of this country, if you're not of this area, if you're an outsider, you're just passing through. You're a sojourner. You're an exile. He says, I urge you as sojourners, as exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. The idea that you're just passing through a country. Don't let their ways affect you. Don't pick up bad habits going through this country. They're going to pull you away from what you know to be right and true. But he says this, and this is, this is, this is powerful, right? Why, to, why should you abstain from the passions of the flesh? Because they wage war against your soul. You are passing through a, a country at war, and you are the enemy. It's against you. It's trying to crush you. It's trying to destroy your soul. And the way that you the way that you beat the battle, the way that you win the war is by abstaining from the passions of the flesh. The passions of your flesh want to destroy you. So first, Paul says in 1 Timothy, he says this, rather, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. And it holds promise. Promise for this present life and promise for the life to come. The desires of the flesh, we talked about that in our last Sunday school. It's this base, animalistic, natural desires for self-gratification. And it can be everything from an appetite for food that can rule your life, an appetite for sex that can rule your life, an appetite for control or for power or for fame. It's about self-gratification. It's about being somebody. It's about having my wants and my needs satisfied. And Paul and Peter say, don't give in. Don't live your life according to the flesh because it will destroy your soul. Rather, Train yourself in godliness. I don't know if anybody, any of you have done any kind of training. Um, the, the, the training that I most experienced um, was when I was in high school and with sports. And I remember um, during wrestling practice, the first week of wrestling um, was um, a week of heck. I'll just say it that way since I'm behind the pulpit. <laughs> But we ran and we ran and we worked and we worked and we did stairs and we did sprints and we did sprawls. And we I mean, we just worked and worked and worked and worked and worked. And I remember people going to the trash can and throwing up and getting back at it. For what? To master your body so you can perform at a level greater than your enemy. For a trophy. 
to get your hand raised at the end of a match. Nothing wrong with that necessarily. But Paul takes that imagery and says, training for godliness is so much more valuable than mastering your body. If you can master your mind, if you can master your flesh, it brings value. It's it's valuable not just for this life, but for the life to come. We need this training. And God is gracious to train us like this. Because as we just read, the passions of the flesh wage war against your soul. What is the result of that? In 1 Corinthians Verse, uh, chapter, chapter 6, verse 9, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now that, that is a powerful verse. Because what that means is that you can say you're a Christian all day long, but if there's no godliness in your life, if there's no righteousness in your life, as a result of the Holy Spirit's power training you to live a godly life in obedience to God's word and abiding in Christ, then you are not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven no matter how much you say you believe in Jesus. Because the things that you do matter. The life that you live, the life that you live matter. He goes on to say, do not be deceived. Don't go thinking that you can live certain ways to say you're a Christian and you're going to to inherit the kingdom of God. He says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now we look at that, we look at some of that, we look at some of that, and we think, wow, that's like the really bad stuff. But if, as we learned this morning, worship is prioritizing God's worth in every decision, then what does it mean when you're not doing that? That's called idolatry. Right here. Do you not know that idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God? That puts, that puts the lasso around every single human being. It's not, just, it's not just the drunkards. It's not just the people who practice homosexuality. It's not just the adulterers. It's not just the thieves. It's every single person who has idolatry in their heart. Which I believe it was John Calvin, who said, the human heart is a factory of idols. Every time we're placing worth on something above God, that is idolatry. But he goes on. It doesn't just end there. He goes on. He says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. You used to be a part of that list, but what happened? You were washed. You were sanctified, meaning you were made holy. You were made godly. You were declared right in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We all were on that list. But God saved us. And the salvation He provides is not just forgiveness. It's a transformed heart. It is a new life that you can live and abide with Jesus Christ. So not only do we need this training, not only is God gracious to train us this way, because if we didn't have it, then we wouldn't fully experience the salvation of God. Our souls would be crushed and destroyed. But God is gracious in his training. All right. God is gracious in his training. 
Right? We see this in the very person of Christ. Paul says that, that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. It is the fullness of God dwelt bodily. And so we can see who God is through the person of Christ. And who we see in Christ is a man who says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We have a God who gives us his grace, not just to forgive us, but to train us in godliness. It's a training we need. It's it's gracious of God to provide this training to us. And he is gracious in his training. He's not a harsh taskmaster. He is not unreasonable in his requirements and his expectations. He has our best interests at heart when he is training us in godliness so that we will live lives that are worthy of the gospel that we to which we've been called. Matthew also says, that, um, the story about Jesus, let me give just a, Five second context. A mother of some of the disciples came to Jesus and said, Hey Jesus, whenever you come to power, um, can my sons sit on your right and on your left? And Jesus is like, You have no idea what you're even asking of me. And then he says this You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, meaning that they're harsh, meaning that they're unreasonable. They take bribes, they do things. For themselves, they use their power for their own benefit. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus Christ shows us that God is a gracious God, that he is a gentle God. And that his training of us is for our benefit. He takes it upon himself. I mean, raise your hand if you think God has to be patient with you. Raise your hand if you've had children you've had to be patient with. How easy is it? It's not easy. And yet God is gracious and patient with us. He has to teach us lessons over and over and over again. It reminds me of the passage in Matthew where it says of the Messiah that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Jesus takes you by the hand and he leads you in godliness and he trains you and he makes you his own. And we have to abide in that. We have to work with him. We have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling knowing that is God at work within us. So when we look at our when we look at our, 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 our covenant, we need to have these biblical ideas going through our head, saying, saying, yes, yes, I am going to endeavor to worship God by maintaining my relationship with Jesus Christ through through his word and through prayer. Yes, I'm going to commit to um, to maintain my relationship with Christ, to Um, respond to his commands as he's leading me and training me because his training is because of the grace of God. His his training me to 
be more godly in my life is not because he is a joy killer, it's because he knows it's the path to true joy. So yes, when he trains me, when he commands me, I will follow in obedience because his Holy Spirit is at work within me. So that I will renounce the ungodliness of this age, that I will renounce the worldly desires and the passions of my flesh, that I will strive to be self-controlled and righteous and a godly person, not because I'm pulling myself up by my bootstraps, not because I have all of this in me and I have what it takes to be a good Christian, but because I'm relying on the Spirit of God. That is the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. God has welcomed us in to a new covenant, a covenant which if you have believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are made new and you have the Spirit of God within you to give you both the will and the ability to follow God's word. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for your mercy and grace.